Mike Stevens joins me on episode 89. Mike is a Canadian who made his name playing bluegrass harmonica, performing with some of the biggest names in bluegrass and playing at the Grand Old Opry over 300 times. Mike toured with bluegrass legends Jim and Jesse McReynolds and recently played two songs on harmonica at Jesse's funeral. Mike won the Canadian Bluegrass Artist of the Year for five consecutive years and released a bluegrass book with Hal Leonard. But bluegrass isn't his only genre, also playing Americana blues, solo looping, soundscapes and even ballet and West African music. Mike also tells us about synesthesia, a condition which means he sees music in colours and shapes and how this has impacted his music. On top of all this, Mike has been a leading figure in bringing music to indigenous communities in Canada, distributing some 50,000 harmonicas to young people. This podcast is sponsored by Zydel Harmonicas. Visit the oldest harmonica factory in the world at www.zydel1847.com or on Facebook or Instagram at Zydel Harmonicas. Hello, Mike Stevens, and welcome to the podcast. Hi, Neil. So you're talking to us from, um, well, you're from Sarnia, Canada, in, uh, in Ontario. Is that still where you're based? Yeah, I'm back home now. Sarnia is quite close to Detroit. You drew on the music of Detroit when you were young, did you? I did. We were really lucky living here. We got Motown and we got early blues just all over the airwaves on AM radio. Yeah, you could hear it as a kid. It just creeps right into your soul. So yeah, very lucky to live here. So, you know, what got you started playing harmonica? Well, there was one around the house. My dad, I've never heard my dad play any music. He was in a marching band, apparently, played trumpet, but I've never heard him. But there was a harmonica around the house when I was a kid. And I picked it up, made a sound on it that felt really, really good. It probably sounded terrible, but it didn't matter. It just felt really good. I was really young, probably 11 or 12 years old at that point. Mm-hmm. Do you remember what sort of harmonica that was? Yeah, it was one that wouldn't even bend, I don't think. I think it was one of those concert double reed harmonicas. Like a tremolo? Yeah, like a tremolo, yep. At what point did you move away from the tremolo into, I guess, a standard diatonic? I think probably five years after, ten years after, I just kind of searched them out or someone gave me one or a, or a friend did or something, and um, that would have been a, a marine band probably. Great. So that's interesting. So you, so you played the tremolo what, quite a lot for five years, did you? Is that really what you based your uh, early playing on? I kind of made noise on it. I wouldn't even call it playing. It just was uh, like therapy more than anything and tried to imitate the sounds of everything around me. Do you think maybe that influenced you to go down a more melodic style of playing, which we'll get into? Boy, that's interesting. I don't know. For me, like I didn't realize it at the, at the time, but I have synesthesia. So, you know, you'd almost qualify that as a learning disability in in these days. But for me, I never paid attention in school because I was always distracted. Everything was making sounds in my head. And whenever I heard sounds, they were either shapes or they were colors. And uh, I just assumed everybody had that. So even at that early age, I don't think I was thinking melodically. I think I was more trying to just play something that I was feeling at that time. Do you think that condition has helped your music is it is it beneficial yeah it's like a superpower for music it makes it really easy to um 
to be in recording sessions and kind of see what's coming next or chord shapes are all different colors. And, you know, if it's augmented or whatever it is, they're, I see them as circles. So I'll see sort of the main chord as a, as a color. And then I'll see variations of that chord as different colors sort of in the center shapes as well. It makes it kind of wide open in my mind to play. fascinating so it's like you visualize the music then is that quite a big part of it yeah it's totally visual yeah it is and you see it in your head you see it in your kind of the top of my forehead is where i tend to see it did you use that in a way that maybe if you learned some say music theory you could apply it like that is that that, you know do you able to apply it in that sort of way or no it kind of it became the opposite to music theory for me it made it, it makes it really 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 hard to learn theory and i know that sounds like a cop out and i have learned some i've learned enough to get by in sessions and and figure things out but it it's really painful i actually get headaches from it i actually you know i had to do a cbc thing one time and it was a review of oliver sax's book on um, synesthesia I was on one side of it, and a buddy of mine who's a really famous musician in Canada was on the other side, and we were debating this book, and he comes from the theory background, and I came from the synesthetic background. For him, when Oliver described it as their electrical impulses, and this is what's creating this, and and it's how it relates to music. And for me, it's just something way more spiritual and bigger and undefinable, like the real the real music is. Those notes and intervals were in my mind, it's just my opinion, and I, I don't know anything really, just what I do. I think that was just designed to explain to somebody how to play something. You know what I mean? Like if you came up with a piece of music and you notated it all out, that's a way of describing what you played. It's not the actual music itself, nor the inspiration for it. So at what point were you sort of diagnosed with this? Is it, and how do they diagnose it? Uh, I was in recording sessions, realized everybody was reading, and I didn't have to read. I could generally follow through it really quickly and, and figure it out. And I thought everybody could do that. And so I started to talk to people and realized that, that no, this is way different. It's a really different way of, of thinking about music. That probably wasn't until I was, you know, 20 years old. I can't define it. And the crazy thing, it's as simple as breathing. It's like, uh, I can't control any of it. And uh, it's just there all the time. And it also means that there are constantly melodies going through my head. I'm sitting here looking at my cluttered table right now. I can build a, a, a rhythm, a, a structure based on the height of everything on my table and the depth of it. And then I can build a melody based on the color of it. So it's happening all the time. And I almost have to push it back and not, not just be in that all the time. Back to your harmonica then. So... As you say, you moved across to the the Marine Bands, what, you were around 16 or so, were you, by this stage? How's yeah, it? it probably was around that time. Is this when you started more seriously getting into the harmonica and, you know, you were listening? I believe that D4 Bailey was a, a big early influence on you. Yeah, I love black string band music. And, and somehow we got that in Detroit. I don't know how. Uh, I love the way that it wasn't the way some people would describe as perfect music. It was just so powerful and so soulful and grooved so hard. I, I really loved it. 
Yeah. And did you learn any other instruments when you were younger? No, I think when I was a little kid, I used to put cardboard boxes up and pound on everything. My parents, I drove them crazy because I, I think I probably wanted to be a drummer and I just would, would drive everybody nuts, either pounding on tables or using pencils or, or all that stuff. And they're probably really happy that it was a harmonica instead of drums. And so was it the, the early sort of pre-war harmonica that really initially drew you? Yeah, it was. Yeah, it was the fatness, the colors of it, the way it was vocal. It was like that person's voice. It just, yeah, it still gets me. How you made your name, um, I think it's correct to say, is in bluegrass music. Yeah, so is it, that's that's correct, is it in your in your um, harmonica world? Yeah, I think so. Like the reason probably any harmonica players would would know who I was would be for my bluegrass stuff, which really I just kind of fell into. Yeah, I mean, obviously you do play different styles, and certainly as your career progressed, we'll get into that. But yeah, so what what got you into the bluegrass then? I always loved bluegrass. Living in Sarnia here wasn't really the hotbed of bluegrass activity. Harmonica is the redheaded stepchild of the bluegrass world, or it, it had been forever. And there was an advertisement in the local paper uh, that a bluegrass band was forming. So I decided that I'd answer that call and went for a rehearsal. And thankfully, they didn't get anybody showing up for the rehearsal. So they had to take the harmonica player, which was me. I learned all the tunes they were doing. I could actually play them better than they could. I knew the melodies and, and knew what to do, but they were still embarrassed to have a harmonica player. So they'd let me play like maybe three songs in a set and then, you know, I'd go sit in the corner. So it was really weird, but I persevered through that. And eventually, you know, we played festivals and, and things. I joined another band where they let me kind of write music and lead the band a bit more. And we ended up winning a bunch of awards and playing on major festivals. And it just kind of progressed from there. So bluegrass is very strings heavy. In fact, it's all strings, isn't it? There isn't even a drummer, right? So how did you fit into that scene with the harmonica and how were you received in the uh, very strings-based uh, music? Well, you know, it, it changed. Initially, it was shocking to people. Uh, I approached it like a bluegrass band is like a giant drum kit. At first, I tried to figure out how can I push and pull in the context of these instruments rhythmically that adds something or that, that makes you feel differently? And that was the first way that I approached it. I didn't even think melody or notes or anything. So it was from a percussive standpoint. And then I slowly started to build patterns based on banjo and on mandolin and then maybe incorporate fiddle lines and then distinctly try and do things that were the harmonica's strengths, not try and cop melodies that sounded difficult on the harmonica, but rather lean on what it can do. And some of that is bluesy. Other things are just that human vocal sound that a really great fiddle player can get as well. As you say, you kind of fell into bluegrass. So before then, you you weren't really playing bluegrass songs, or you weren't even really playing sort of melody songs. Were you not? You were still, you know, like, like we talked about. You started out in the early blues, and then you you sort of then picked up the bluegrass tunes from when you started playing them. Yeah, basically started to learn them as we went. And you know, I, I talked about the other band where I could sort of 
lead the band. We won some awards. We got on a major festival called Carlisle. And that was one where Bill Monroe would play and Ralph Stanley and Jim and Jesse and the Lewis family. It was a huge festival, really wild. So we played that and I looked pretty wild. I didn't look like a typical bluegrass person at that point. I went backstage after playing and the Lewis family, who are the first family of bluegrass gospel music, they're from Georgia. Little Roy grabbed a banjo, played Train 45, and he said, uh, can you play fast? And I said, yeah, I can play fast. And he said, can you play this fast? And then he just tore off a Train 45 banjo tune, and I could keep up and I could, I could play it. So he got all excited and he said, okay, well, we're bringing you out on stage. So they brought me out on stage. He played that instrumental and I played it with him and people went crazy and they loved it. And we came back off the stage and little Roy came up to me and he said, look, if you agree to follow the tour bus all over North America, we're not going to pay you. But if you agree to follow the bus, I will plant you in the audience at the show and then I'll, I'll start playing a banjo tune and I'll stop in the middle of it and I'll say, you know, this tune needs harmonica. He said, that's your cue to jump up in the audience and say, I have a harmonica and then come up on stage. Yeah. And uh, we did that all across North America. My wife and I followed that bus for no money. So what ended up happening was, you know, I would do that and get on stage and play. Well, they'd pass the hat and I ended up making more money than the bands on the bill. And I got a booking for the next year. We, it's all a leap of faith. We did that for probably well over a year. And that's how I met Jim and Jesse and how eventually mm -hmm. I got on the Grand Old Opry. Fantastic introduction and great way, a great gimmick there to get you in. So Jim and Jesse you mentioned there. So this is Jim and Jesse McReynolds. So these were a very sort of hot bluegrass band at the time. Yeah. And um, so, yeah, how did you get playing with them? Well, I played a festival in Georgia. It was the Lewis Family Festival. My wife and I were camping in a tent and I just got done playing with the Lewis family and went backstage and Jesse McReynolds said, boy, would you come up and play a song with us? And I said, sure. And I was pretty nervous, but got up and played with them and, and I could actually fit in and it sounded good and people liked it. So afterwards he came up to me and he said, you need to be on the Grand Old Opry. Those are words that nobody in a million years would ever think that they would hear. And then just probably, I don't know if it was weeks or a month later, I was at the Opry. So again, explain to people who might not know. So the Grand Ole Opry is a sort of the home of country music. Yeah, it's a, it's a real mecca of uh, country music, and bluegrass is played there a lot as well. Yeah, so tell us a bit about about the Grand Ole Opry. Yeah, I have deep love for the Grand Ole Opry. It, oh man, how can I even describe it with the reverence that that I want to? It just started out as this radio show that had real players like it wasn't slick and it wasn't about record deals it wasn't any of that it was a live radio show and um, they had string band music and country music and everybody has been through there roy acuff was kind of the king of the grand old opry to get to play there is impossible it just is absolutely impossible and it's the high point probably for any country music or or bluegrass musician to get to do it bill monroe is a member you know, Jim and Jesse were members of it. So when it was my first time to play the Opry, I, I was so nervous, just 
could hardly stand it. Got up there. Jim and Jesse actually gave up their spot on the Opry to showcase me. And Roy Acuff was the host. And uh, it was on national television. And we played and I got a standing ovation. And Roy Acuff came and stood probably a foot from me while I was playing. And my mouth just turned to glue. I don't even know how I got through it. It was this surreal experience that, that I still can't believe. And afterwards, you know, Roy talked to me and, and you know, now I've, I guess I've done over 300 shows there over the years, but Roy became one of my biggest fans. And, and even when he was blind, he'd have people walk him out the stage to, to see me play. But I just can't repay Jim and Jesse enough. You know, think this first generation band with these, you know, basically strict rules around bluegrass would sacrifice the primo spot on the Grand Old Opry time after time after time to showcase a harmonica player from Canada. Uh, it's just, just outstanding. I can never, never repay him. And so one of the songs you played there is Orange Blossom Special. Yeah, that's one, like, um, it, when you play the Opry, you have five minutes to knock the crowd on the head, and every major star comes out there and sings their hit. So there's a bit, you know, you've got some pressure. You better be good. It's not like you can let a show build up and, and ebb and flow. You have to nail it. And so that's why Orange Blossom had that kind of shock factor. And we mentioned Deepwood Bailey earlier, and so he, he played there. Was he the first harmonica player to play Grand Old Opry? believe he was. I mean, there was Oni Wheeler with Acuff. I'm not sure, but man, I have deep respect for DeFord Bailey. Just unbelievable. We shared a dressing room with uh, Bill Monroe and I'd always get Bill to tell me DeFord stories and Acuff to tell me DeFord stories. And Bill Monroe and I used to play a tune called Evening Prayer Blues that Bill got from DeFord. <laughs> D4 Bailey was inducted in the Country Music Hall of Fame, I think, a few years ago, wasn't he? Yeah, it's wonderful. I'm so happy. Yeah. And you mentioned, uh, obviously, uh, Jesse McReynolds there, and you were very close to him, and you're grateful to both of those guys. So recently, unfortunately, Jesse passed away, and, and you went to his funeral. Yeah. You know, the first record that I made in Nashville 34 years ago was with Jesse and a bunch of really great pickers and Bill Vorndick in the studio. And we recorded the the last song I did, a solo piece. And I walked out of the booth to silence. And I thought, oh man, I really messed that up. And then after a long pause, Jesse came up to me and said, I have a request for you. Uh, I want you to play that song at my funeral. And so I instantly changed the name of the song to Jesse's request and hope that I would never, ever, ever have to do that. But yeah, I, I just came back from there. It was last week that, that I played it. And Jesse on his deathbed with all these, the biggest stars you could ever imagine, historic people in the room and everybody wanting to play on his, on his deathbed. Jesse said that the only person he wanted to play at his funeral was me. So yeah, it was heavy, heavy. The, it still is. I'm still trying to bounce back from it all. I'm reliving every memory from, from all those years. My wife and I both are. Yeah, that's quite an honor and uh, quite a lot of pressure on you as well. How was it playing at the funeral? Uh, I barely remember it. I played one song for Jesse and I played one song for the McReynolds family. 
and I, I barely remember it. I know I was shaking real bad, but you know, there's something to be to be said for music when words are really hard. Uh, music. So you were kind enough to send me a link to your performance at the funeral. So you played Jesse's request. Yeah, it was it was live streamed, and of course, all the you know, full of big stars and legendary people. The history in that room was was mind blowing. The direct connections to first generation bluegrass and the Grand Old Opry and country music were all there. You know, it was it was heavy. Talking a bit more then about um, you know bluegrass and the harmonica. I mean, obviously bluegrass is very you know melody driven. It's very fast. You've talked about rhythm being really critical to your playing and that and bringing it out. So you know, what about some you know some tips on playing bluegrass and the harmonica for people? What I would tell anybody at first is don't think about the melody at first. Think about the rhythm inside. Listen to a a mandolin chop, which a harmonica can do really really easily and change pitch as well. Think about a banjo. Think about those patterns that that um, a banjo roll does. But think rhythmically. That's the way to think about it. And even if you're not a super proficient bluegrass player, if you go in and know how to chop rhythm and how to add long lines and and uh, paint in that context that that really fits and and makes it feel right, you'll do okay. And then eventually start to work on your melodies because um, a lot of people. It's just my opinion. I think that a lot of people try and play bluegrass on harmonica, and what they do is they memorize the melodies, and that's wonderful. But that is just not bluegrass. Bluegrass is this incredible combination of different styles of music in this rhythmic pattern that you that you have to learn. It's almost like if you hear traditional blues done the right way with um, explosive dynamics and going down quiet and changes in the rhythm and and the way it breathes that's beautiful and it's like bluegrass in that you can't just learn a melody over that and say that you're playing it you have to get right inside the feel of it and the the groove of it and how it moves you know so were you one of the first you know kind of established bluegrass players on harmonica and, and did more follow after you i i don't know i maybe i mean i've I don't think there were too many that toured the world with first-generation bluegrass people, and, and I did that for many, many, many years. Who knows what, what's first? I know I'm a lucky guy to get to do it. I feel lucky. I think there are uh, a bunch of players playing it and probably some incredible players out there now. I don't really keep up with who's doing what. I remember somebody who did bluegrass really well was P.T. Gazelle. I always loved the way he approached it. He's a guy that could play melody, but he also understood the the rhythmic aspect of a band like that. And I thought he was really good. But yeah, I maybe, you know, I think with a first generation band, I played all the major festivals, played all over the world with these folks and Jim and Jesse and the Lost and Found and the Lewis family. And so, yeah, maybe, you know. So then getting into your albums and your releases, so as you say, you played with various famous bluegrass outfits and then you started releasing your own albums. These are under your own name. Yeah, so your first bluegrass released album was Harmonica, released in 1990, which won uh, the Bluegrass Recording of the Year in Central Canada. So uh, you got that, you got that award. So yeah, tell us about that album. Man. Yeah, it's crazy. That came to be, just got a bunch of friends to, to pick on it. And 
because I've been playing bluegrass so long. My friends were a lot of famous pickers and we just went in and, and ripped it off in a day. We used Bill Vorndick, who is just an incredible engineer, just kind of played what we were playing on the live show. years later 1992 you released blowing up a storm which was i think a really big uh, big album for you and a slight change of direction was it not full-on bluegrass yeah and it it won uh, a top selling record on pine castle records which is a bluegrass record label so yeah. a harmonica record was their their top seller yeah so on here you've got you know some harmonica sort of classics like whamma jammer and, and, and fox chase and summertime You've also got, which I, I picked out, which I enjoy, which is Ghost Riders in the Storm. It's sort of a cowboy song. Yeah, Ghost Riders in the Sky. Yeah, Jim, I think Jim and Jesse sing on that. Yeah. And then you've got the song Blowing Up a Storm. Is that a song that you composed. Yeah, it's one Jesse McReynolds, I think like me, he always had music going through his head constantly, constantly, constantly. You could stop him at any point during the day and he was always picking and he'd have some kind of pattern. So, uh, he was in the back of the bus, we were heading somewhere and I hear like four notes of this thing, cross-picking thing. And I thought, oh man, is that ever good? And I said, Jesse, I'm going to record that. So I, I got my recorder and recorded just that little brief chunk of it, just a few notes. And I took it home and built a song around it, gave it to Jesse. So that, yeah, that's where Blowing Up a Storm comes from. Great. So that's based on cross-picking from a mandolin, isn't yeah, it? Yeah, it is. Does that give it quite a unique approach then on the harmonica and then maybe explain the uh, the cross-picking technique on the mandolin? Yeah, it's, it's, it's amazing. Jesse invented this cross-picking thing on the mandolin. I don't know how he does it, but he's the inventor of it. It's just amazing. It, it sounds um, almost symphonic. When he cross-picks on a mandolin, there are a lot of notes that ring that aren't deadened. And those notes that ring tend to create interesting sort of harmony over the pattern he's playing. So when you take a harmonica and you learn those patterns without the ringing strings, they become modal in a really unusual way, uh, just really unusual way. I, I just love it. I just worked out all that stuff on, on harmonicas. And then and jumping forward a few years in, in, in 98, you formed the Mike Stevens Project. So this was, you know, the start of your own band or for the first time or was there other ones? Yeah, there were other things that I put together, but that was a bunch of friends. It was um, a group called Laughing Sam's Breakdown, a wonderful band from the area. They they had a, a bunch of traction, you know, they were going to get signed to Madonna's label and, and other things. But around that time, uh, George Gruen, the guitar guy, he was involved with the House of Blues in Hollywood. They George asked me if I would like to play at the House of Blues opening in Hollywood. And he said that uh, Aerosmith was going to do a surprise performance. 
And so I wanted to put a band together to be able to, to play that. So I started rehearsing Laughing Sam's and, and they were wonderful. Well, it turns out that there's a guy, I believe his name was Isaac Tigert, was the other owner. And he wanted a bunch of antique and famous instruments from George to put in the House of Blues in Hollywood. I think somehow George didn't want to put some of these super exotic, incredible instruments into the House of Blues in Hollywood. So I ended up losing that gig because they didn't get along and, and I was got caught in the crossfire of that one. But that's where that band came together. So then CBC asked me to record it and uh, we went in the studio and recorded it. Yeah, so this is the album Normally Anomaly. Right. So this is quite an experimental album, isn't it? You've got quite a lot of effects on there. What was your approach in this one? Yeah, well, I, I did looping forever. Even before I was playing bluegrass, I was doing soundscape stuff. One of my best friends, uh, Larry Towell, is a magnum photographer. Uh, I would always score his images. It's really crazy. He, you know, he was not a famous person at that time, nor was I by any stretch. But we always worked together doing these uh, soundscape things around his images. And it turns out, you know, Larry has become this world famous, you know, magnum photographer. And we've even done performances for World Press Photo in Amsterdam and played all over the world with me scoring those images. So I was always looping and always using delays. I was even using open reel tape machines back in the day and and working with effects. So yeah, and you still do that. You do solo performances where you use looping. Is that something you still do? I do. Yeah, yeah, I love it. Yeah. <laughs> And then you did, uh, in 2000, The World Is Only Air, which is an album of original and Canadian fiddle tunes. Yeah, that was with um, a great Canadian record label called Borealis. Yeah, I love that record. That one's, that one's a lot of fun. And then... An album you did in 2005 is the album that you did with Raymond McLean, which is the Old Time Mojo album. Yeah, Raymond's like my brother. We played together forever. We, we met on stage at the Grand Old Opry. You do a song which I've always thought would be good to do on, with harmonica, which is dueling banjos, where obviously Raymond's playing banjo and you're playing harmonica. It just seemed to fit, you know, it's always that duel and, and a real crowd pleaser. Uh, there's a great effect on uh, another song I love on there, which is in the Pines, where you're playing harmonica in unison with this kind of hollering singing. I love to do that. It, it's like another voice. That's something that feels good to me every time we do it. It never gets old. 
it's kind of like the Sonny Terry thing, isn't it, where he's whooping and hollering, but you're doing it obviously right in unison with him. It's really effective. So, and then someone else you recorded with is uh, Matt Anderson, who this, this is more more blues, is it? At first to say, you're doing a couple of albums with him. Yeah, Matt's a great guy, wonderful performer and and old friend. And the first record, Piggyback, we just got together and played. Then uh, Matt got a residency at the BAMP Center, which is just this amazing creative place in Banff, Alberta. And it turns out there was an award-winning engineer there. And Matt and I went into the studio and just recorded, push record in a day live. I love the sound of that record. There's no external reverbs or anything. It's all stereo pairs hung inside the orchestral room. Uh, and it was recorded without headphones or anything. So I, I really dig the sound of that record. And then another uh, great interesting thing you've done is you play with an, uh, an African percussionist, singer-instrumentalist. Uh, I'll let you pronounce his name. <laughs> yeah, Okaija Ofrozo from Ghana. Yeah. And so you release an album called Canada Africa. I love that record. It's really unique and it was an incredible challenge. You know, I had to play with an instrument called a geel, which is a precursor to a xylophone and it has these gourds that have holes in them and spider webbing, actual spider webbing as resonators on these gourds and these slots of wood that you play. And they're not really in tune for 40 to play with a regular instrument. And the rhythms that you play in this traditional music, the melody that you your Western ear hears first is not the actual melody. It's something way deeper inside. So it took me a long time to try and figure out how to do this stuff by playing all bent notes, basically playing uh, microtonally on, on the harmonicas to do it. It was it was really great. And I knew I had it when Okaija said, it's perfect, it sounds like a bug. Are you using standard diatonics to play that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Great, yeah. So, um, yeah, really interesting sound. So, I mean, did you have to do anything particularly to, you know, prepare yourself recording that, that music or...? No, just get way inside it and not count it. Again, that's where the synesthesia thing helps. I never count and and I'm not thinking chords and structures. It's all colors and shapes. So it makes it really easy to play polyrhythmic and odd meter um, things. Definitely. And you did, a, you did a gospel album called Life's Road to Heaven. I uh, I'd, uh, talked about gospel harmonica a few times recently, and uh, yeah, it's always worked so well, the gospel music on harmonica, doesn't it? Doesn't yeah, it? that was real nice. Got some wonderful players on that. Bobby Hicks playing fiddle on that. And mm-hmm. yeah, that was, a, that was a fun record to make. And then your latest album, I believe, is the Breathe In The World, Breathe Out The Music. That was released in uh, 2021, was it? Yeah, that's the that's the newest one. I, Yeah, I'm happy with that record. I think it's a step forward and sort of combines all of the styles that you were talking about kind of in, in one thing that grooves, that grooves pretty hard. 
Yeah, definitely. Like you say, lots of different styles on there. You kind of got a kind of reggae song, like Little Bird, for one. Now, one of the interesting things about Breathe in the World, Breathe Out Music, that record is a is a tune called Put Your Phone Down. What I did was Art Harachian, the drummer, it's just a, the drummer and I, and I didn't tell him I was going to do this, but it was sort of an improv piece. We set up kind of a New Orleans groove that Art's playing. What I wanted to try and do is I wanted to thread this this crooked fiddle tune through that pattern, but then keep moving it off the one to create tension as it goes on. So every time I thread that fiddle tune through, you probably don't notice it unless you're listening to it, but I keep moving it off the one in really uncomfortable amounts. And I didn't tell Art because I wanted to see what his reaction would be to it. It's just a one take thing. We did it live. And by the last time I play it, it is so far off the one and outside that it's great and art just hangs in and keeps playing even though it's this weird off meter thing until finally he just gives up and locks back in on the on the beat that's why i love that tune for that Another really interesting thing you've done is play with the Atlantic Ballet. Yeah, that was crazy. I did a thing for CBC, a fundraiser at a theater in New Brunswick, Canada. They heard me play. I did a solo thing. And afterwards, they came up to me and they said, uh, boy, you know, would you ever be interested in writing a ballet? I like them. And I said, yeah, I think that'd be really cool. I'd, I'd love to do that. So I was really busy that year. I was touring like crazy. And I kept getting these messages from the director of the ballet saying, you know, we're waiting for the music, you know, hope things are going okay. And, you know, I was feeling the pressure from it. And I got another email saying, you know, we really need it. You, you better do it. And I happened to be home just for like three days. And I thought, I have to do this. I looked at what they'd given me, the dance, and I just improvised this about 20 minute piece that had all different sections and everything. And I'd recorded it. And I sent it off to them. And about oh, an hour later, I got a message back saying, it's perfect. We love it. So I thought, oh, that's great. So I continued on my tour. It got to be time to play this live in front of an audience. So we went in a couple of days early to rehearse it. And there I am in front of the whole ballet. And they're just these incredible athletes. And they said, okay, well, start the music and you know we've been working on it let's see how it goes so i start it neil it goes about eight seconds in and the director goes no 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 stop 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 and that's when i realized that they had choreographed every second of my 20 minute improvisation mm -hmm. that moved everywhere it went all over the place and so i started to have a flop uh, sweat at that point and i laid out all these pieces of paper they played the recording and i watched them dance and I wrote out notes that were like six feet long going, person with red hair comes out, spins once from the left, one leg goes up in the air, this does that at that. And just this big, long sheet of paper. Uh, we were performing it the next day. So I stayed up all night looking at 
the performance of it and making my notes. And we were doing it in front of a live audience in a sold out theater. And it's just me. So I moved my looping gear out there and my looping rig is just insane. It could blow up at any moment, but it sounds wonderful. So I have that on stage and I have my six feet of cheat sheets, all the, the curtains down and I'm standing there on stage with the dancers. Just before I went on, I had probably a pretty good shot of scotch for courage and, and stood there, the curtains open and we started and it went off perfectly. <laughs> I still can't believe it. Anyhow, that's, that's my ballet experience. Well, and this piece is th called 36 Hours. Yeah, it's called 36 Hours. I didn't have a name for it. After I'd written it, I continued on to play uh, this festival called the Rockin' Walrus Festival in Aglulik in Nunavut, in the Arctic, high in the Arctic. And I was one of the only non-Indigenous people there. It was a huge honor. As I was getting off the plane, I was met by an elder named Abraham, short guy, about 80 years old, and an interpreter. And the interpreter said that Abraham would like you to play a traditional ayaya song with him. Now, an ayaya song is is something that probably comes from his family. And it tells a story, and in this case, it was about catching a giant walrus, tying it to an ice floe, and, and how they brought it in. It's a true story. It goes back generations. And a massive honor to play it with him. So I sort of worked my way through it and went on stage with Abraham, and, and it seemed to go well. We went back to a, a little room afterwards with the interpreter. I said to Abraham, you know, Abraham, I have no skills at all. I wouldn't last... 30 minutes out here. Something would eat me or I'd fall through the ice. Abraham looked at my feet and then he looked at my head and then he turned to the interpreter and he said something. And the interpreter said, he said you would last a day and a half. Mm -hmm. So that's why I called the ballet 36 hours. Quite possibly the only person I've heard of having composed a, a piece for a ballet. So, I mean, it's great watching people dancing when you're playing, right? But to see ballet dancers uh, dancing while you're playing, that must be incredible. It was really incredible. And, you know, it wasn't so strict. There was still some room for improvisation and, and the way they danced it. Yeah, it was, it was really great. And so you mentioned there playing to the indigenous people in the Arctic Circle. So a thing that you've done is... Well, you founded ArtScan Circle, which is about um, giving opportunities for Indigenous communities in Canada. So, um, and you've done a TED talk on this topic, uh, and there's a, there's also a documentary called a, a Walk in My Dream. So, um, yeah, tell us a little about that. It's a long, extended story, but basically, at the top of my career, I chose to do a gig for Canadian peacekeepers. We were we were going to the northern tip of Ellesmere Island, which is near the North Pole. Then we were going to Bosnia just after the ethnic cleansing to play for peacekeepers. And, you know, we were being treated like big shots. We were flying in the belly of a Hercules aircraft. And we stopped off for fuel in Goose Bay, Labrador, which if you're going to drive there, you know, it's like a thousand kilometer gravel road at the end of it. It's basically a flying community. And in that area, there's an indigenous community, an Innu community called Sheshashi, and there's Northwest River and Goose Bay. They wanted us to do a concert. And so we were at a local movie theater and I'd heard a little bit about what was happening in this Innu community. They had, you know, low level flying and they've had high suicide rates and stuff. And when it was time for me to play my 
portion of the show, I dedicated a song to Sheshashi and and talked about that a little bit. Touched a nerve with the audience for sure. Got got a interesting response. Went back to the record table and a guy came up to me and said, if you sneak away from the military tour, I'll drive you out to Sheshashi. So I did do that and went out with them. And what I saw changed my view of Canada. Uh, I won't go into the whole thing, but but it was it was quite something. And as we were leaving, uh, we rounded a corner and there were eight kids uh, with bags of gasoline to their face by a fire. They were sniffing gas. And he stopped the truck and I got out and played music for them. And it was a really powerful thing. It, it They didn't tell me to screw off or, or go away. They actually started to ask me questions about my family and um, we had real conversations. So some of that got filmed. I promised to send those kids uh, back harmonicas and books to the school and all that stuff. As I continued on the tour, that footage ended up going all around the world. And all of a sudden, I was the person that everyone wanted to talk to about this issue. So I thought, you know what, everyone has this maybe one chance in their life where the world will listen. So I shelved my career at that point and just started trying to figure out ways to connect ordinary people with these kids in this community to start to build partnerships. And uh, what came to me was lending libraries of musical instruments. So I filled a transport truck full of instruments, got them up into that community, and then went and did a workshop at the treatment center. And then it's just mushroom from there. And uh, we built an organization that rotates musicians and artists through these communities in Canada and Alaska. I think I've given out 50,000 harmonicas at this point and countless instruments and recording studios. And we rotate uh, Indigenous artists now through all the communities and ongoing. And we have many wonderful partnerships. So, yeah, it's been great. Yeah, fantastic. Amazing. So there's been a documentary made about you called Harmonica Crossing by a guy called Brian White. Is that around this topic or something else? No, that one is about the Opry stuff, and it was all shot on mm -hmm. film, black and white film. Oh, there's so much footage. We talked mm -hmm. to everybody. We got That was at the height of the Opry stuff for me, so all the doors were open everywhere we went. Brian was a student filmmaker, and that film is around somewhere. I haven't seen it in a long time, but but it was yeah. shot on film. And you've also written a book called Bluegrass Harmonica, which is published by Hal Leonard. That book was written in the, the flurry of dates where, you know, we'd play four shows over a weekend and drive all night. We'd get no sleep for years and years and years, my wife and I. I basically wrote that book trading off driving with my wife in the car. So <laughs> it's a, a sleep-addled <laughs> harmonica book. A good place to learn the bluegrass harmonica, you think? Yeah, I think so. I mean, it's just the way I do it. I'm certainly, I don't think I'm an expert or nothing. I, I'm, I'm good at doing what I do, being me, but certainly, you know, there's lots of ways to approach it. And we're just touching on some of the many awards, if you want. We've, we've mentioned a few, but an interesting one is that you won the Canadian Entertainer of the Year between 1990 and 1994, and then you had to, you had to withdraw from the award to give somebody else a chance. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's crazy. Yeah. Yeah, that happened. Yeah. Yeah, great. And then you won various other um, Metatorious Service Medal from the Government of Canada and the uh, Folk Music uh, Ontario. So yeah, lots of awards. So a question I ask each time, Mike, is if you had 10 minutes to practice, what would you spend those 10 minutes doing? Yeah, what I would do is um, I would try and clear my mind, pick up a harmonica and try and groove, try and connect with 
I don't want this to sound new agey because it's not how I think about it, but it's to connect with music, to connect with what's happening and, and feel and groove. And it wouldn't be about memorizing and playing certain licks or practice things or anything. It's about trying to create a groove, a, a something that moves me in that 10 minutes. That That's exactly what I would do. Yeah, and obviously the harmonica's good at that, yeah? Sure is. So we'll we'll get onto the last section now and talk about uh, gear. I understand you played Richter tuning for for a long time, and then you discovered Brendan Powers' uh, power harps tuning. Yeah, power benders. Great? Yeah. So when did you start playing those? Oh, I don't know how many years ago it was. Yeah, it's been a bunch. It's all I play now. I mean, I still play everything. Originally, Joe Felisco built all my Richter tuned harps, and Joe is just just wonderful. His harps are still just over the top, but. When I switched to power benders, Joe didn't want to work on the power benders. So I, I hunted around for somebody and landed on Joe Spears and he's great. He's building these wonderful power bender harmonicas for me. And, and what I like about it at first was that it erased all the muscle memory. So, you know, when you play all these bluegrass licks and have done this for a long, long time, you tend to rely on patterns that are really safe and you've done them, a, they're etched in your brain and you've done them a million times. And I didn't like that. I wanted to break out from it. So that's why originally I picked up power bender harps is because, you know, they're like going down the stairs in the dark with a step missing. They, they shake you up a bit and you can come up with new things. Then I realized that if I set them up so that I could overblow every note on the harmonica, even the very top high ones, I could come up with all kinds of great, crazy, weird patterns and, and odd chords through tongue blocking. And, and I just started to really love them. So yeah, I've been playing them for, for quite a while now. I've, I've interviewed Brendan and we did talk about the, the power benders you're playing. Yeah. So just remind me and everybody else just says, is that where the, the top octave is changed so that you can bend the the draw notes as you can on the, the lower notes on the top octave? That's right. Yeah. You can do those same patterns, uh, play them that way. But also when you start to overblow, if you set them up correctly where you can overblow, you know, the 10 hole overblow, the nine hole overblow, the eight hole, like all the way through it you can really create crazy patterns. A good example of it would be, I do this really weird horn line and put your phone down. That's where I'm using the power bender that way. So you talk about you still using Richter tune harmonic as well and, and possibly other ones. So is that right? You're not exclusively playing the power band. I like everything. Whatever gets the job done. Same with brand. Like it, they're all different. They all have a voice, and they all sound quite a bit different. So I'm open to to anything that'll that'll move me. You know. You know, it, it can be difficult, as you say, you have to spend time on the power bender. So how do you move between the different sort of tunings and, you know, the different, um, the different ones that you're playing? It just kind of happens. If you, if you do it enough, it, it just happens. It, it, uh, not as difficult as you'd think, you know, it was at first, but, but the more you do it, the easier it gets. And, and sometimes you may come up with something even better by making a mistake on one or the other, you know? 
So you you touched on the brands then. So you, it sounds like you play the different brands. You haven't particularly got a favorite. You're not endorsed by anyone or anything like that. No, I never did an endorsement thing because I'm always going to keep searching and changing and trying. And I don't want to say that I play one kind when I might play others, you know, in a session or or, or live. So, yeah, oh, there so- is one thing, Neil. You know, what's really interesting. I do play in the Arctic. I play a lot of times where it's minus 20 and minus 30. There's only one harmonica that will work at that temperature. Uh, and I generally use minor tunings, but uh, Lee Oscar minor tunings, I can play those in the Arctic. Like when I'm writing music and inspired by something while I'm out, those mm-hmm. harmonicas work at minus 20, minus 30. I know it sounds weird, but the others don't, but the Lee Oscars do. That's interesting. I wonder why that is. Because the brass reeds, aren't they, like a lot of the other harmonicas? So, yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, I have no yeah. idea why, but they absolutely do. So you mentioned tunings there as well. So you say you like to play lots of minor tunings. Did you use a lot of different tunings and, and which ones? Yeah, mainly um, natural minor because I love the chord stuff. I mean, I can get all that easily in fifth position in a power bender, but I can't get the chords. And I... I love the rhythmic uh, chordal stuff, and I like low-tuned harps, and I love uh, low-tuned minor harps uh, a lot. So do you use minor-tuned harmonicas on minor songs, or can you use them in different contexts as well? Different contexts, primarily in minor songs, but you can you can use them in different contexts as well. If I had a session to do where it was a, an unusual line that they wanted me to play, I'll lay out all of my harmonicas if I have time, if I'm doing it from home, and I'll try every harmonica, not thinking positions, not thinking anything, just to try and find that line mm-hmm. that works on a harmonica. And if that laid out in a particular minor or or major in an odd position, well, you know, so be it. And so you, you mentioned overblows, so you obviously do play overblows and overdraws. Yeah. Uh, and what about uh, any chromatic? I don't think I've heard you on any, any chromatic from the recordings I've listened to. No, you know what I'm looking for? I want, maybe somebody out there that hears this can help me. I want a chromatic that I can be rough with, that I can use breath blasts and mouth percussion in a in a low tuning, but something that will take that and not cack the reeds out. I don't know if there is such a thing. If there was a chromatic that would do that, oh man, I, I would be all over it. Um, what about any singing? Do you do any singing? I do, yeah. I sing on um, the latest record. It's always been kind of uncomfortable for me, but it's just like uh, standing there naked when you're singing. Playing a harmonica is easy, but but singing is a different thing for me. But I'm, I'm going to start doing more and more of it, I think. Right, and what about then your uh, your embouchure? Are you uh, tongue blocking, puckering, anything else? Yeah, I'm, I'm using both all the time. Probably primarily pucker, but I'm always always using both. Always, you know, some tongue blocking and and splits and things like that as well. Whatever whatever kind of gets me there. And what about amplification? What do you like to use? Bunch of different things. You know, it it, it depends. I've always collected really odd pedals and and things. If I wanted an acoustic sound, I really like the Schertler amplifiers. They're really great. I've got a really old pair of those that are like a PA you could mix a record on. They're wonderful for harmonica 
I mean, I've got a bunch of vintage amplifiers that I'll use on sessions and stuff. I also have a bunch of modeling stuff that I'm, that I'm always working on. Yeah. And I also have preamps and things like I'm not hardcore. I'm always looking for something different. So, you know, an overdriven sound for me might come from overdriving a preamp or going through transformers or something, you know? Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in the modeling amps these days. They're getting better and better. Have you have you found one which really works with the harmonica? Yeah, there there's some tricks with the modeling amps. So if anybody was going to try them, my advice to you would be first try and see if you can get a big, clear, harmonically rich harmonica sound with a microphone. Not overdriven, but just a big sound. Not tiny, not squeezed, not, not affected. And then add your effects to that. Headrush does a really good job on it. Believe it or not, they're they're very very clean. Neural DSP, the Quad Cortex, is quite expensive, but it's it's going to be there. I'm working on that quite a bit. Um, I've had fractals, yeah, all, all kinds of stuff. It it is there if you put the time in and, and work on it. But then you know you need full range amplifiers to to play through. But uh, my whole approach with those things isn't to emulate an exact tube amp it's to come up with your own sound that's really unique and powerful um what about uh, microphones boy lots of different ones for years i used a buyer m88 that's if i've got it in a stand and back off it because they don't like plosives and i tend to use mouth percussion a lot when i play if you wanted something that was really clean and no proximity effect and that sounds exactly like your harmonica and doesn't feed back the sure ksm8 is just phenomenal for my looping rig I use a little Sennheiser. It's about an inch and a half long. It's a Tom mic that I bought many, many years ago. And I just stick a volume control in it. I love that because it, it's got very unique uh, proximity effect that you can use for, you know, vocalizing and, and sort of painting with effects. Yeah, so that's the the live stuff. In the studio, I've got a really great U67, a, a vintage one. I had a buddy work on it. It's got a really thin micron diaphragm, so it's real quick. Got a couple of old uh, Sheps small diameter condensers that are wonderful for capturing percussive room sounding harmonica as well. Just to finish off, then final question on your future plans. You, you told me that you're uh, recording a documentary next week. Uh, what's that all about? Yeah, there's some folks making a, another documentary on me. They've already followed me around through the Northwest Passage and the Arctic, and they're coming to the house to do um, more work. It'll take about a, another year, I think, while they put it together. And just a, a story on on my quirky life, I guess. Yeah, great. And uh, what about your, uh, you know, upcoming gigs or anything? What else are you up to? Yeah, I'm gone. I'm going to be out for a couple of months. I'm actually home more than I ever have been. Been doing some sessions and and still playing. I'm going out the middle of August. I'll be gone two months. I head to New York first, and then on to Greenland. I'm part of an expedition team and writing music as we go through the Northwest Passage. Then I'm doing an Alaska tour with a great blues musician named Mark Brown for a few weeks and then come home. Got a concert fundraiser at a theater here in October. And then I'm going to do a full band theater show in early January uh, and play the the new record from that. There's always lots of stuff, thankfully, going on. I'm a pretty lucky guy. So thanks so much. It's been great and really interesting to speak to you, Mike Stevens. Oh, thanks for taking the time, Neil. I appreciate it. Once again, thanks to Zydel for sponsoring the podcast. Be sure to check out their great range of harmonicas and products at www.zydel1847.com 
or on Facebook or Instagram at Zydel Harmonicas. Thanks so much to Mike for joining me today. What an amazing career he's had and continues to have. And thanks to Tom Ellis once again for helping me out. There's now an option to make a monthly voluntary subscription to the podcast. Any amount you choose, entirely voluntary. It did help me out with the running costs of the podcast, so I appreciate anybody who wants to do that. You can find the link on the show notes and on the website. It's over to Mike now to play us out with another song from his latest album. This one's called Grumbling Old Man, Grumbling Old Man. Thank you.